Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Calamity cancelled. The Senate agrees a debt ceiling deal, but jobs growth disappoints in September. Ireland's eye to eye. The Irish join the drive for a global minimum corporate tax rate and fossil fuel flip. China boosts coal output to counter its energy crunch. It's Friday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome once again to First Move. And it's a pretty frantic Friday, actually. We've had the latest U.S. jobs report out, and it's a mixed bag. Let me walk you through it. It's weaker than expected. Only 194,000 jobs added back in September. We were expecting around half a million people net to be hired. Despite this, though, the unemployment rate declined more than expected to 4.8%. Don't worry, we're going to explain this or at least try. Numbers for July and August were revised solidly higher, though, which partially offsets that weakness. And wage growth was up more than forecast, too. I have to say today's report may slightly complicate the job for the Federal Reserve. The big question is, is tapering tempered? Even in the face of rising price pressures, we will discuss. Let me give you a look for now at the pre-market response. Futures are currently lower, mostly lower, after three straight days of gains. Stocks had rallied after the short-term breakthrough in the debt ceiling battle. The Senate voting last night to raise the U.S. borrowing limit until December, just in time for a debt crisis replay during the holidays, perhaps. Q, Christmas carols like debt. The halls, do you fear what I fear? Jolt, not joy to the world. And of course, I'm dreaming of a default-free Christmas. And that's the key. OK, I'll stop now. It is Friday after all. One thing, though, that's unstoppable, the rapid rise in energy prices after a brief respite Thursday. Oil and natural gas on the rise again as China takes steps to boost coal production. More details on the implications of that shortly, too. And that, though, lighting a fire under Chinese stocks, Open once again after a week closed for the holidays. And as you can see, wrapping up Friday's session in the green. Wow, there's lots to discuss as always. Let's start with jobs. Rana Fruha joins us now. Rana, great to have you on the show with us. As I mentioned there, it's a mixed bag, weaker than expected on the numbers, better revisions on the months prior, but the unemployment rate dropping in the face of a weaker number. What do you make of it? You know, I think this is about stats. Um, you know, the way in which these things are tallied is is bizarre and it's changing. I mean, if you think about the amount of people that are working from home, particularly women, you know, over the summer, a lot of a lot of women being with children, trying to split that uh, be at home, go to work sort of thing. You know, we we, we see a lot of jobs being started, small businesses uh, being created digitally, people starting businesses from home. At the same time, you have big corporations that are worried about inflation, worried about rising energy prices, and so their hiring is down. What to make of that? I mean, I think that we really don't have the statistics at this point that reflect what's going on in the economy. There have been a lot of small businesses created. There are also a lot of big companies that are stalling on hiring. Um, I think that once school starts and you start to see what women are really doing, you know, are they going to go back to work now? Do they feel they have to go back to work with unemployment benefits going down? I think that will give us a better picture. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that stands out to me as well is the sort of squeeze higher that we're seeing in wages. We also had Hurricane Ida to deal with. We know, fine, that the bump up in unemployment uh, benefits ran out in September, but it's a little bit soon to see the implications there. It sort of feels like a tight labour market to me. 
You know, it does. I mean, you see help wanted signs everywhere. You, you know, I, as a matter of fact, I was on, uh, on the phone with a doctor this morning and they said longer hold times because of labor shortages. Um, you know, there is real pressure, particularly in the sort of, you know, bottom of the labor market service jobs. Um, whether or not that's going to uh, increase jobs in the middle, higher quality jobs remains to be seen. And that's really the question for the president and for the Fed, which, of course, is thinking about tapering. You know, Jerome Powell had said he didn't need to see a great jobs report in order to start pulling back on that bond buying. Does this count? I mean, it's half, less than half of what we were expecting. So I think there are going to be big questions. And I think we're going to see the market continue, just as it has been this week, to be up and down, up and down. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is less than half. But if you add in the revisions to the prior two months, and it actually doesn't look net-net that bad at all, I have to say. Um, mm. We'll keep guessing. Rana, great <laughs> to have you with us. Thank you so yeah. much. Something Thanks we do so much. pretty well on this show. Thank you, Rana Faruha there. Thank you so much for joining us. OK, let's move on. Ireland is in. The OECD scores a major win for its proposed global tax overhaul by recruiting one of Europe's lowest rate nations. Ireland has agreed to increase tax on corporate profits to 15 percent. That means sacrificing the low rate that attracted tech giants, including Google, Apple and Facebook. Claire Sebastian joins me now. I mean, this is a huge deal. I have to say, though, despite what I said there, there is a caveat and it comes in on the wording here. Talk us through the implications of Ireland and whether or not we've still got holdouts, because that's a challenge for the EU. Yeah, so right now, uh, Julia, in terms of holdouts, we're hearing that uh, in addition to Ireland and Estonia signing on, Hungary uh, may also have, have, have ended its holdout status this morning. That would mean that all of the EU members are now in. That would be a big deal as we move forward uh, to implementation. But in terms of Ireland, obviously, this was, was one of the, the, the key challenges in getting this deal done. Ireland uh, has, has prized its 12.5% corporate tax rate. It's attracted uh, not only the, the big US tech companies, the likes of Google, Facebook, Microsoft, but also big pharma companies like Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson. Under this, this new deal, if it is implemented, uh, Ireland will now raise the rate on companies making more than 750 million euros a year in revenues to 15%. They've said that for the rest, it will stay at 12.5%. But this is still a big sea change for Ireland. They said essentially better in than out. If we don't tax at 15% under the global minimum tax, someone else will. So we might as well get those tax revenues. And under the deal as well, don't forget, Julia, uh, a smaller group of companies, the biggest in the world, will see their tax receipts redistributed based on not only where they make profits, but where they make sales. That was a compromise from the United States, where, where most of the big tech giants are headquartered. And that will be a, a major change. But of course, implementation is the big question now. Oh, that's exactly where I was going to go. I mean, we've got nations like what the UK, uh, India, France already looking at a digital tax of their own. The Americans have said, look, if we manage to agree this, those things have to fall by the wayside. But there's disquiet, isn't there? It's to seeming whether or not President Biden can get US Congress above everyone, I think, across the line here. What, what's going to be the biggest challenge, do we think, in implementation? And are we talking years? Yes. <laughs> In a word, Julia, we are, I think, talking years. It's, it's the, ir the irony is that the U.S. is the one that has supercharged this process this year. Mm. The compromise brought forward by the Biden administration in the spring that, 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 that sort of set the framework for the redistribution of the tax on those biggest uh, global companies. They may now be the ones to slow it down because, of course, the Democrats have this razor-thin majority in the Senate and they will need to pass this through Congress 
to get it through. The whole point of this really has been to sort of try to level the playing field around the world as the U.S. tries to bring up its corporate tax rate. So I think a lot of this hinges on whether they will be able to do it. But either way, everyone needs to ratify this, all of the uh, the OECD members. And so even if it does go smoothly through the Senate, which is sort of difficult to imagine at this stage, it will still take a couple of years technically to get this done. But after a decade nearly uh, of talking about this, we are closer than we've ever been. I was just doing the maths on that. So see you in 2025, maybe (laughs) plus two more years. Wow. Claire, thank you. Claire Sebastian. But it is progress. Mm -hmm. Okay, on to China now, where the government is ordering coal mines to ramp up production to ease an energy crisis. It's part of Beijing's struggle to balance the need to meet rising demand for electricity with measures to combat climate change. Selena Wang joins us now with the details. And that's exactly it. It's a delicate balancing act, Selena. Welcome to the show. They have to literally keep the lights on, and I mean that literally, while also maintaining some kind of commitment to decarbonisation. What does this mean for that? Yeah, Julia, absolutely. What we're seeing here right now is Beijing trying to ease the pain of this energy crisis. We've learned from Chinese state media that China has ordered 72 coal mines to boost production by nearly 100 million metric tons. That figure is equivalent to about 30 percent of China's monthly coal production. And what it really highlights here is this tension, this struggle in China to balance the use of coal to keep the lights on while also trying to tackle the climate crisis. But this energy crisis Julia has been worsening over the past several weeks, spreading to most of the country. And it's caused governments to ration electricity, some factories to suspend production. And as we've discussed before, it's impacting people's daily lives. You've got some cities with total blackouts, traffic lights that have stopped working in some places, leading to these severe traffic jams, shops that have had to close early or rely on candlelight to stay operational. But the context here is that coal is still China's main energy source. But in a bid to reduce carbon emissions, China has shut down hundreds of coal mines earlier this year. But in the short term, experts say that China has little choice but to boost coal production in order to meet this demand. Julia. Yeah, it's more than half, isn't it, of their energy consumption coal? I mean, this is what happens when short term realities collide with longer term aspirations and without good policy and planning. And uh, we're seeing it all over the world. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to two journalists for their work defending press freedom. Maria Reza from the Philippines and the Russian Dmitry Muratov lead independent news outlets that expose corruption and abuses of power. Both have faced legal and physical threats because of their work. CNN's Will Ripley joins us with more. Will, great to have you with us. It's a win for journalism. And I think if we speak about Maria Reza in particular here, um, it's recognition of an incredibly brave woman, both of them, but, but specifically, I think, Maria. And it really goes to show, Julia, that whenever history looks back at the Philippines' story during these years of the Duterte administration with this brutal war on drugs, and I was there covering it right before President Trump uh, was inaugurated, and you saw bodies on the street every night, people who were killed often by police without any sort of trial, these extrajudicial killings. And Maria Reza and the the Rappler boldly exposed and uncovered what was happening, even when other outlets in the Philippines were kind of bowing to pressure from the Duterte administration, which at that time had huge approval ratings. She stood up against it, and now she's been vindicated, despite her legal troubles being accused of 
libel, alleged tax offenses, violation of foreign ownership rules in the media. She had to bail herself out of jail and pay these legal fees to, 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 to get out of this trouble. And yet now here she is, a winner, a co-winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. So when history looks back, she may have lost the battle in the Philippines, but she won the war in, in that she will always be the journalist who stood up against what many people feel was, was a really brutal, uh, was a brutal um, period for the Philippines with that, with that war on drugs, Julia. Yeah, and because of her, ultimately we know about it too and we're aware of what the country went through and how she managed to, um, to handle it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well. It was uh, it, being there and, and, and being there, Julia, and seeing what was happening and then President Trump coming in and just basically all of the oxygen got sucked out of that story and it all went to covering President Trump and what was happening in Washington. So you had, you know, no, there was no more kind of widespread interest in what was happening in the Philippines. These people, often drug addicts at the street level who were being killed. Maria Reza and her team continued to expose and uncover. So there will always be a historical record of what was happening, even when many of the eyes of the world were turned elsewhere. Yeah, we say every year that these are worthy winners, but I have to say this is a real heartfelt one. Um, and Will, thank you for being yeah, there and absolutely. reporting on it too. Will Ripley, thank you. All right, at least 20 people were killed and nearly 100 wounded in a suicide attack at a Shia mosque in Afghanistan. According to the group Doctors Without Borders, the explosion happened in the northern city of Kunduz during Friday prayers. So far, there's been no claim of responsibility. The U.S. Navy says there will be a full investigation after an American nuclear submarine struck something underwater in the South China Sea over the weekend. Eleven sailors were injured. The damaged sub is now at a naval base in Guam. The incident comes amid rising tensions between the U.S. and China. Okay, so to come here on First Move, forget about Friday. U.S. Congressman Mark Ticano says a four-day work week could boost wages and increase work-life balance. We'll discuss... And Vestiga vindicated, did this week's Facebook outage prove we are all too dependent on big tech? The EU's antitrust chief joins us later on the show. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are on track for a higher open this Friday after a surprisingly weak U.S. jobs report for September. Less than 200,000 positions added net to the workforce last month, about 300,000 thousand fewer actually than were forecast. That said, job gains for the previous two months were revised higher, and I think that's an important offset. And the U.S. jobless rate fell to below 5%. That's the first time we've been below 5% since the pandemic began, although this decline reflects a drop in the size of the U.S. workforce too. This is the last jobs report before the Federal Reserve meets to discuss pulling some pandemic-era stimulus. Its job may have become slightly harder after today. The Fed under extreme pressure, of course, to tighten monetary policy and to pull back as inflation rises. Meanwhile, the pandemic has transformed the U.S. labor market. And our next guest says it could transform our working hours, too. Congressman Mark Takano wants to see a four-day work week. It will create better work-life balance, he says, and will also raise wages. At the same time, he argues workers will be more productive. And now, Representative Takano is working on turning that proposal into law. 
and he joins us now. He's House Democrat for the state of California. Sir, fantastic to have you with us on the show. I do want to talk about your proposal because I do find it very interesting, but obviously we're just digesting what we got from that jobs report in September. And I just wanted to get your sense, not on the numbers, but just what you're hearing from workers in your district and also for employers, particularly small and medium-sized employers. What are they saying about conditions today? Well, uh, I walk around many small businesses mm. and see wanted signs up. Um, I see uh, also, uh, you know, people who um, are part of the great resignation, uh, so-called, in terms of uh, people not wanting to return to uh, the jobs uh, that they were working, that something about the pandemic uh, awakened within them um, you know, the experience of that life is short and time is also important. Uh, and many, many uh, people, across, workers across, and, uh, across this nation in America have, uh, have uh, you know, awakened to the fact that they only have so much time and they're um, looking at returning to better jobs or looking for, for better work or work that, that more suits them. And they're also concerned about the work-life balance and hence, um, there's a great amount, I think, of attention that is being given to the legislation that I've introduced to uh, shorten the work week to 32 hours. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say we're, we're calling it a four day work week, but it's not really that. What your legislation that you've proposed is giving workers that work beyond 32 hours time and a half. So, so pay and a half for those added hours. What's the message? What's the aim? And what do you think the outcome would be if this were enshrined in law? Well, the message would be uh, a new norm, and, and uh, people are looking not to return to normal uh, coming out of this pandemic. They're looking to return to, um, uh, you know, a, to a better normal, a new normal, uh, which would mean um, more work-life balance, uh, perhaps um, uh, a benefit to the planet by actually uh, uh, increasing the number of days where people drive less. We tend to drive less, and, uh, you know, businesses are... Uh, many businesses are, are not really operating on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, if we add an additional day uh, where the planet can actually uh, also continue to rest, not just uh, people, uh, we can also help uh, global climate change um, improve uh, improve in that area as well. But really, it's, it's about people being able to uh, address um, other aspects of their lives. Um, and uh, this is all part of, I think, um, what's being communicated by workers when they say they want to keep the greater flexibility uh, that they experienced during the pandemic. And it, the pandemic had an effect of really jolting and shaking up the way we do things. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, many employers are also telling me, uh, they're asking me how I'm, I'm, I'm personally dealing with workers uh, who want to work, uh, continue to work from home, or at least have work one day from home. Uh, these are all sort of uh, ways of, pointing toward, I think, a shorter work week. Um, and I think um, uh, we're seeing many experiments around the world. Uh, this is not something that's coming out of the blue. Uh, this, you know, the country of Iceland, the, the country of Scotland, uh, the Japanese are offering guidance to uh, uh, businesses on how to shorten their work week. Um, it's a concern, not just here in the United States, but, but globally. You know, it's interesting, some of the criticisms that I've seen of this, and there's, there's obviously been plenty, is one, can small businesses afford this? Will they just pay 
and perhaps hire somebody else. They'll do 32 hours for somebody and, and hire somebody else to do this, which, you know, as you've already pointed out, I think it will raise hiring, which is a good thing, assuming that the, the workers are out there. But, you know, most people work more than 40 hours, actually. And, and those that do, they do because they get paid too little and they have deep job insecurity. And some of the criticism is like, it, would something like this actually raise the inequality? It's fine for those that are better paid to say, hey, I'm only going to work for you know, four days a week or 32 hours a week. But for those that actually are desperate and already have two jobs, I'm not sure it helps them. What's your response, Congressman? Well, Julia, for, for, for pointing out this criticism, really um, what we're seeing now is a, is a, is a very tight labor market, one right. which I think is already leveraging workers. This is, a, this is I think, the, the right time to introduce this idea um, because uh, for those employees that are really in skilled sectors already, they're, they're valuable and uh, employers are worried about losing them to other employers. Um, it, it would often mean a 10% raise. We're not going to see a cutback in hours uh, in these sectors. In other sectors where it's where it's looser, um, uh, you know, say say in the restaurant business, many of these uh, restaurants don't actually hire people for a full 40-hour work week to begin with, and uh, many of those workers are actually you know juggling several, at least two or more jobs. Uh, this uh, would begin. Uh, overtime pay, as we have noted before, at 32 hours. So this is also a way of, uh, I think, giving those le- those workers and those sectors uh, more leverage uh, in the labor market. Uh, so I don't. Uh, uh, we're talking about those who are subject to the wage and hour laws. Those people who are non-exempt uh, and uh, you know would earn overtime earlier. So we would see, I think, the net effect be, uh, I think, an upward. Uh, trending of wages was was what we what we need I think um, in this particular time where uh, there's you know massive income inequality but really interesting enough uh, the conversation about shorter work weeks is happening in the highly highly skilled sector and then in the in the exempt worker space those people that are highly skilled uh, computer programmers or uh, tech space workers um, as well as in the, the healthcare industry um, you know people who are highly you know, licensed professionals. Uh, here's where uh, you know their um, leverage as workers become even, I think, even more pronounced because uh, employers, as they're looking to compete for these workers, I think uh, are going to have to start looking toward not just compensation, uh, but also b- better working conditions. Uh, my legislation is, you know, I think intended to sort of coincide with these very sort of rarefied sectors of the labor market, uh, which I think have a tremendous impact on uh, culture, uh, just just the whole broader culture of, of work. Congressman, I think the conversation is really important to be having, and I'm actually glad we had it. I just, my fear is that for for a party and a Congress that didn't manage to raise the minimum wage despite years of not changing anything, that it will remain conversation. But we will reconvene and we will keep having the conversation. It was great to have you on the show, Um, Democratic Congressman of California, Mark Takano, said thank you so much for making time for us today. Stay with us. More to come. Welcome back to First Move. Time magazine's Facebook cover pretty much sums up another crisis week for Mark Zuckerberg. He's been on the back foot fighting claims of placing profits before people, including children. And the social media platform suffered its longest outage in 13 years, which also froze Instagram and WhatsApp. 
globally renowned for tackling big tech, the EU's competition commissioner, Marguerite de Vestager, had two takeaways. The commissioner wants more players in the space, and that's a key aim, of course, of the proposed Digital Markets Act, or DMA. And she's reminding us there are other ways to connect too, like offline, for example. Facebook was just one of many topics for discussion at the first EU-US Trade and Technology Council meeting, or TTC. China supply chains and regulation were also on the table. Much to discuss, and I'm pleased to say the EU Commissioner Vestiger, who is also a co-chair of the TTC, joins us now. Commissioner, fantastic to have you on the show. Welcome. It's always a pleasure. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Likewise. Um, I want to talk about Facebook first and the tweet you sent out. Um, I think there were totals made of millions, if not billions of calls, of of texts, of messages, hours that weren't lost uh, trawling on the Internet. And I I say the word lost carefully. Um, Did you get proof of concept for the DMA, the Digital Markets Act, in what we saw this week in your mind? I think I... You know, I was quite convinced already, uh, but I hope that everyone saw the need, saw the need for an open market where there is room for more than giants. Because if you get too dependent on a giant, well, if the giant fails, what are you left with? You know, your second point was also important and that sometimes just physically talking, offline talking is better. But the challenge, I think, is it, it costs more. And I think that's the balance, or it can cost more, the balance that you have to find when you're, you're tackling a company that has great utility value, but also drawbacks. How do you find the balance? Well, I think it's important also to be really precise about what, what, what's the cost, uh, because I think also a lot of time is wasted in checking if there is an update. Has someone said something spectacular? I think there's a lot of distraction uh, of time being wasted, not being able to concentrate anymore. And uh, I think there is something, you know, fundamental in being willing to disturb one another by taking a normal call. Because uh, during COVID, you know, I I realized I don't use my phone for calling. I would send people a, a photograph or a text message, but I don't call them. And I think it's important that we are willing to disturb one another to say, I would like to speak with you right now. Of course, you can say that you're busy, but I, I, I would like to get in touch with you. And I think it's important that we have that human interaction and show that we're willing to, to disturb one another instead of just relying on, on something that can be dealt with whenever you, you have time for that, because we need to make it a priority to have time for one another. You're talking about the human costs the societal costs. And it's quite interesting because, you know, the legislation that you're trying to work around as chief of the Competition Commission, it sort of doesn't allow for the quantification of the societal and the the human costs. And that's part of the challenge, I think, that you but all regulators are dealing with. Um, We spoke to a small business this week that said they simply wouldn't exist without being able to advertise on Facebook. Um, Again, how do you find the balance? Well, it is indeed tricky. Uh, I have a lot of respect for businesses with a small advertising budget. Uh, And this is why we have not taken the step to propose that targeted advertising should be prohibited. What we're asking for is that you uh, know why do I see this ad 
not that it's forbidden, because for advertisers on small budgets, it's really important to have some degree of certainty that your ads are being seen for someone for whom it's relevant. And that is a balance. But this is why we are asking for this sort of labeling. You see this ad because of ABC. And this is why we ask for transparency so that vetted researchers can go through sort of ad libraries, uh, journalists as well, in order to see what is actually uh, out there. But this is not only sort of a, a competition issue, it's also an issue about sort of uh, product or service responsibility. Because in a physical product, we would, we would think that it was crazy if someone launched a product and they hadn't checked if it would catch fire, if it would be poisonous, if it would be dangerous for you. And here we are asking for the same sort of risk assessment also of the digital services that the big platforms will have to consider, is my service safe? Uh, for, for Can it be misused? And if it's not safe, then better mitigate those risks. I think that's a brilliant analogy. Um... What is competition? And we'll move on to a different uh, tech firm is the antitrust investigation that you launched into Apple Pay last year. The, the tap and pay payment system, of course, only works for, for Apple iPhones. Can I ask how close you are to concluding in that investigation and, and whether you've spoken to, to Tim Cook? Well, we're still, uh, we're still not close to, to concluding. We're still in the process of, uh, of getting the data and, and making our analysis. For me, uh, the payment cases, they are quite important because it's, it's a hidden cost. I don't think many people consider that also when we pay, there is a cost of payment. And it's important that you have choices because different modes of payment have different costs uh, depending on what you pay and, and where you pay and, and how you do it. So the payment cases are important for us, but, but we're still not in, in any, anywhere close to sort of the concluding phase. So the rumours that something's coming imminently are, um, are false. I think, uh, I think we get the message. And you've spoken to Tim Cook or you haven't or not willing to uh, comment? Well, I have spoken to Tim Cook, but not about cases. Uh, we had a meeting in, in New York uh, last week. Uh, they have points on, on our regulation. And I think it's important that everyone is, is heard. Uh, they know what, what our aims uh, are. Um, but I will not go into detail uh, with what was in the meeting except for this. You were gloriously called the tax lady by Donald Trump. Um, congratulations, I think, is, the, uh, is my response to that. Um, but you are a co-chair of the Trade, um, or the, tech, the Trade and Technology Council. And this is vital because this is the United States and the EU talking about how to not challenge, but to work out how to have a more innovative environment, how to regulate appropriately and perhaps coordinate on this, which I think is vital. I mean, you have led the way and been a pioneer, I think, on approaching and just actually listening to you, listening to you now versus sometimes what we hear from US Congress, I think, highlights that point. Is the United States ready to take the kind of actions that, that the EU has and you've pioneered? Well, one, one of the things that I, I really appreciate was our... Uh, sort of alignment uh, on artificial intelligence. Uh, we have been pushing an approach uh, to artificial intelligence where we focus on use cases where there is a risk, for instance, of, of discrimination. 
that you're seen with your gender or your postal code or your background rather than, than who you really are relevant uh, for, for the service where the AI is being used. And here I find a lot of alignment. That's our, our US uh, partners, uh, counterparts, uh, they, they tend to share this alignment. And, uh, and we agreed also on a working program to try to figure out how can we measure uh, how can we have a tool to help us measure if we get it right to get in control where artificial intelligence and the use of it is threatening to some of our fundamental values? And, and I see a really a step change to the approach to technology compared to what it was uh, five, seven years ago, because of course, there's the same enthusiasm that we share on what uh, a society we can create with technology, but also, I think, increasingly a sense of, of uh, urgency in taking action to create the necessary trust for all the positives to be unleashed uh, now that we, I think, blanket see the negative sides of technology. Yeah, and I think to your point, stronger together. If some of the biggest nations mm. and regions can coordinate on tackling Indeed. this, then, then that's the key. Um, I want to move on to a different topic because as much I want to get your view on, um, some EU nations are concerned in terms of what we're seeing in, in rising energy prices, that, that Russia is using its leverage in terms of natural gas supplies and, and energy supplies to propel prices higher and have raised concerns um, with the EU, can I ask, or the European Commission, can I ask where, where you stand on this and how concerned you are? Well, I'm really concerned about uh, the spike in energy prices, mm. uh, both, of course, for, for industry, but also for households uh, who live on a low budget, where uh, the energy bill is, is really, a, it's, it takes a toll uh, on, on what they have uh, to, to do with. So, so this is a very important point. And what we see is that we are still very affected by the prices of imported fossil fuels. So for, for the long term, it's really important to have more, uh, more renewables that are, so to speak, native uh, to Europe, that be solar, that be water, that be uh, wind, uh, in order not to have this vulnerability from imported uh, fossil fuels. And second, to make sure that we make the most of the market design that we have, where the cheapest uh, energy production is being put into use first uh, in order to make full use of the renewable um, uh, production that we have already. Uh, we will launch uh, next week sort of a, a catalog, a, a toolbox of, uh, of what member states can do in order to, to soften, to cushion uh, what vulnerable households are experiencing uh, right now. Uh, but also, uh, of course, we, uh, we ask uh, some of the great um, energy providers like Gazprom uh, what it is that is happening. Uh, because it is indeed important for us also as a, as a law enforcing uh, competition authority uh, to take a keen interest in, in the market developments with the big providers. You know, I, I fundamentally believed for a long time that you are the busiest woman in Brussels and um, you've only confirmed it with, with this conversation. Thank you so much for joining the show today. Great to get your insights. And um, yes, you have a lot going on. So we'll let you get back to work. Um, it was my pleasure.
Thank you. Thank Executive you Vice much. President of the European Commission and Co-Chair of the Trade and Technology Council. Great to chat to you. And we'll speak again soon, please. Yes, I hope so. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Coming up after the break, an economic inequality game changer. Why the hot new show Squid Game could be Netflix's biggest yet. Welcome back to First Move with a look at how U.S. stock markets are performing. It's the last trading day of the week and we've been pretty volatile in early trade. The major averages, um, where are we? Well... Yeah, we're pretty much unchanged. We're still on track to finish the week with gains. Investors having to navigate a huge number of important issues, including continued labor market uncertainty. The U.S. reporting today that only 194,000 jobs were added in September, a downside surprise and actually the weakest month of job gains this year. We saw more than 100,000 job losses in public education and hiring with sluggish in the restaurants and bars that saw strong gains earlier this year. Labour shortages, of course, but we did see revisions to the prior two months, which is key. We'll be hearing a lot more in the coming weeks about what this means for Fed policy going forward and whether the US central bank will begin pulling back stimulus next month, as many had expected. One positive, though, last night's vote in the Senate to raise the debt ceiling until early December. So that's a key risk off the agenda for now. Netflix says a show which portrays a kind of economic hunger games could be its biggest hit yet. It's a dystopian drama called from South Korea's Squid Game, and it's becoming the most talked about TV show since Tiger King, as Paula Hancock's reports. On social media, these images are everywhere. On television, I'm here with the cast of Squid Game. Everyone is talking about it. Welcome. Amazon's Jeff Bezos tweeted, I can't wait to watch the show. Already hitting number one in 90 different countries on Netflix, Squid Game is a South Korean TV show where 456 debt-ridden contestants compete in childlike games for a prize of nearly $40 million. But the penalty for losing is death. Show creator Hwang Dong-hyuk has wanted to make this show for more than a decade, but studios rejected it. When I showed it to people, a lot of them said that it was unfamiliar, it's strange and unfamiliar. What is this? What the hell is this? They said this in a negative way. South Korea already has a strong film industry with deep talent pools and large profitable studios, but its TV shows were predominantly romantic soap operas until Netflix arrived. I suddenly thought, Will I be able to bring the show to life as I want it if Netflix is involved? I took that script from 10 years ago and showed it to them. Netflix said they loved it. Netflix says it has already invested some $2 billion on Asian content and will invest another half a billion on making new Korean content alone this year. I think in the past couple of years, we've seen Korean content viewing grow four times uh, in the region. Parasite. This is a golden age of Korean cultural exports. One win after another, music, films, TV shows, dubbed Hallyu or Korean Wave, and it's swept far beyond Asia, where it's been popular for the past two decades. Huang says that this show's message resonates around the world. The world is getting much harder to live in. Even in the last 10 years, wealth disparity is growing. Nations are facing economic strife, and the added element of the COVID pandemic has made the wealth gap even worse. 
Social disparity mirrored in Oscar-winning Korean film Parasite. Film experts say that content from South Korea, with its turbulent history of war and military dictatorship, traditionally carries a strong political message. Media is not just means of entertainment like in the United States or in the West, but media has been always uh, considered a very important tool for political enlightenment or political resistance. But it's not all politics. It is still relatively cheap to produce um, dramas in South Korea compared uh, in America. And the Squid Game, the, each episode costs less than $2 million, uh, which is half of the price Netflix invested in each episode of House of Cards. And the younger generation is far more open to foreign language content. If you look at those who watch Parasite, a big, big number of, of the kind of audiences or the audience that went to see Parasite in the United States was younger people. Um, and they were, they've been really keen to kind of break that one inch subtitle barrier. The success of Squid Game is already helping other Asian content to trend on Netflix, while other streaming platforms are looking to replicate this enormous success. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. Well, that's my weekend sorted. More to come. We're back after this. This one is a Turkish Shibas. And this one is a French Shibas. So this one is well caught. This one is farmed. So the well cut can be uh, the double price per kilo. But uh, yeah, the, the farm is still a very nice quality and the average person cannot spot the difference. And that's the problem. Fish stamped as red snapper, but in reality, cheap tilapia. Frozen seafood, sometimes weeks old, masquerading as fresh off the boat. Often, you can't tell the difference. For decades, seafood supply chains have been poorly enforced, but Chef Marco says that is slowly changing. His restaurant on Dubai's coast is partnering with Seafood Souk, a company using technology to eliminate seafood fraud. Seafood is an industry that is wrought with not necessarily fraud, but opacity or darkness within the supply chain. It is very difficult for buyers to know where they're getting their seafood from. At its core, Seafood Souk is a marketplace, connecting fish suppliers with restaurants, hotels and supermarkets around the world. The company developed a proprietary algorithm called SFS Trace, which records every detail of the fish's journey, from the exact time it was caught to the type of ice and temperature used during its transport. We have the ability with technology, with marketplace, with SFS Trace, to eliminate the possibility of fraud, whether intentional or unintentional, happening. SFS Trace was originally designed for catering and hospitality to track orders. Now consumers are benefiting from the technology. Today, Seafood Souk is using Chef Marco's restaurant to launch SFS Trace to the customer for the first time. We, at the end of the day, as consumers, are the most powerful direction drivers for businesses to make sure they make ethical decisions. In Chef Marco's kitchen, orders are piling in. So we are very happy now, especially because we can, uh, with a QR code we're gonna put in place, our guest is 100% sure from where the fish was in the last 24 hours. With the use of technology and a conscious appetite. Thankfully, at Chef Marco's restaurant, the only thing fishy is the meal on the plate. Anna Stewart, CNN. 
Welcome back to First Move, a focus on sustainable building practices at this year's Expo 2020. I mean, some of the pavilions will remain on site long after the Dubai Expo ends, as Eleni Jokos explains. At Expo 2020, legacy has been at the center of every planning decision. And it's at the Moroccan Pavilion where you'll find the idea of legacy everywhere. Taking inspiration from its ancient villages, using rammed earth construction techniques, its pavilion merges the classic and the contemporary. Rammed earth construction is really the oldest construction technique that humans ever use. What we wanted to do is to lift this tradition from the vernacular into almost an industrial dimension to propose rammed earth as an alternative to concrete. As the tallest country pavilion, it is also, according to its designers, the largest rammed earth facade of its kind. It's built like a village. It's 22 houses stacked on top of each other. It's a building experience where all of these houses are connected through a single winding street. It's a building that has 10 gardens that show all of the ecosystems of Morocco. Standing as a country pavilion for now, in six months' time, it will take on another lease of life. We've actually designed two buildings in one. This will be transformed as housing, which is the reason why we've developed this notion of a village. Each of these volumes that you see will transform into apartments. Then the sense of community we're creating will then last longer. In leaving a lasting legacy, Morocco won't be alone as the whole Expo site has been planned as a future and smart city. We are leaving an entire city as a legacy of Expo. A city that is totally redefines urban planning, as totally redefines the sustainability, minimal use of water, different ways of building roads from recycled tires, the layer of technology is extremely beyond any other cities across the world. Leaving behind one of the world's most technologically advanced cities, Expo 2020 is hoping it will continue to drive innovation long after its World Fair ends in six months' time. Eleni Jakas, CNN, Expo 2020, Dubai. And finally, on First Move, an unsinkable gift for Christmas. It's Lego's largest set ever, and it's a replica of arguably the world's most infamous ship, the Titanic. It's more than 1.3 metres long, with 9,090 Lego pieces. Figurines of Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet are not included, but we shall survive. The price, a relatively Titanic-sized $630. That's the entire Christmas holiday taken care of as well. We do try and help you out here. That's it for the show. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. And I'll see you on Monday. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.